for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. Every day in the nice little Canadian town of Beavermount, Ontario, is pretty much the same. Folks are polite, there's a hockey game that evening, and someone gets brutally murdered. Sorry About the Murder, a very Canadian murder mystery podcast. New episodes weekly. Listen to season one now by typing Sorry About the Murder into your favorite podcast app. Ah, bello! Greetings, fans of the Esoteric, and welcome to Madame Magenta and the Arcati Killer, chapter Well I Never. That's the name of the chapter. That seems fitting, doesn't it? After the reveal that we've just had. Yes, actually, this chapter starts halfway through a conversation, so remind us of what's just happened. Uh, well, so uh, we are being held captive uh, against our will, obviously. So, uh, hang on, let's see if I remember. So, we're in the room... Which is in your workplace. Yes, that's right. Yes, it's a bedroom. Yes. And we've been captured by goons. We've been captured by goons. And Elspeth and Roger are there. Yes. And then in walked. Who should walk in but... Fazir. Fazir himself. And he's just said, hello, Magenta, we meet again. That's it. Classic. Right, okay, here we go. And me... Says Bernard. You met me as well. I'm Magenta's husband, Bernard. We had tea and biscuits in the living room together. Fazir studies him, as if struggling to remember. Meanwhile, Dave is going mad in the bathroom, barking incoherently about the enemy and unnatural forces. He's really taken against him. Fazir isn't as threatening-looking as I remember, though. He's thinner, more careworn, with heavier bags under his eyes and streaks of grey in his beard and hair. It's messier, too, and his robes are crumpled, as if he's not looking after himself properly. He looks a bit shit, to be honest. Not the sleek, powerful figure that walked into my house only a year or so ago. I suppose it's only natural that he looks different, as presumably he's properly lost the plot since then, which accounts for all the murdering. Although, as far as I know, he's been murdering for years. I have no real idea what he's capable of. Is that your dog? That wasn't very posh, Bernard. Can we try it a bit posher? A bit more gravitas. All right. Is that your dog? That's better. He asks, pointing a finger towards the closed bathroom door. We nod. Don't hurt him, I whisper. Fazir sneers. It's not him you should be worried about. Looking at this newly decrepit figure, it suddenly occurs to me that I might have been the one who tipped him over the edge. All that oogie-woogie magic in the airport could have quite feasibly disturbed the balance of his mind. And getting arrested wouldn't have been a barrel of laughs either. If he figured out that it was my fault, he'd certainly have good reason to hate practitioners of the occult. Sweet baby Jesus, this explains everything! You killed those women because of me! I croak, though perhaps I shouldn't. Tears leap into my eyes. You killed all those women! You killed them and you stole their brains. I look around at his associates, who presumably help him in his brain-stealing business. Why? I demand. Why do you steal their brains, for Pete's sake? Rather than reacting in an evil-slash-guilty manner, they all look either flabbergasted or baffled. To be precise, Roger, Thick Steve and Fazir appear baffled. Roger's shagging mum, flabbergasted. The only one not partaking in this narrow palette of emotions is Greg, who looks exactly the same as before, sort of blank, like a face that's been painted on an egg. 
Fazir, says Bernard in a straight-talking man-to-man voice I've not heard him use before. Go on then, Bernard. Come on now. You need to let us go. There's over a hundred people downstairs, and the police have been keeping a close eye on Magenta. How do you expect to get away with this? It'd be best for everyone if you let us go. Fazir looks thoughtfully at Bernard, then turns to the others. It is unfortunate he is here. What are we going to do with him? Roger's mum speaks for the first time in a thin, scratchy voice. I still can't figure out her role in this. We can use him as a second vessel in the ritual. She says, eyes cold. If the first one is destroyed by the Tempest. Oh, so that's her role. She's an occultist. Hang on, what? Says Bernard. Who's the first vessel? I ask, knowing the answer. The woman speaks again, her authority clear. Roger, tell the staff to go home. Say there's a gas leak, and they're not to come in tomorrow either. Greg, Steve, when everyone has left, take these two downstairs to the kitchens. She looks directly at Fazir and smiles, the line of her mouth cruel and taunting. And we should bring the dog too. Animal blood might come in handy. Oh! Oh! Oh, That's the end of the chapter. That's a very, very short chapter. (laughs) (laughs) We can't really stop there, can we? No, okay. I mean, the next one is very much in the same vein. It's just called Blinking Nora. Blinking Nora, which is an expression I haven't heard anyone say for... For the last 50 years. Yes, I, I think I'm only familiar with it through old sitcoms. Yes. From sort of the 60s. Yeah, to our American listeners, it might sort of make sense if I do a sort of mid-century British Cockney accent to say it. Blinking Nora. Yes, I don't know who Blinking Nora is or why she's blinking so much. But there we go. Some things are meant to be mysterious. We shall never know. Right, here we go. Blinking Nora. Gabriel, I hiss, waggling my hands in their new bonds to try and get the blood circulating. Come help us, you useless bloody angel. You can't still be annoyed at me. Gabriel! I'm currently stranded in the middle of a chalk circle, tied to a wooden chair in a large rectangular room in the basement. I think it's a pot wash area. Stainless steel dishwashers and shelves of crockery and cutlery line the walls of the cavernous kitchen space. Bernard is also in restraints, of course, but he's some distance away, attached to the leg of an aluminium table along the far wall, with Dave in his lap. Oh, for our American listeners, it's aluminum. Aluminum, of course, yes. Both goons are stood by the only door to the room, currently not paying us any attention. Fazir, Roger and his mum, I heard Fazir call her Elspeth, awful jolly hockey sticks, ridiculous name, are... I'm not sure where they are, actually. Well, I know that Roger's off-site. I overheard Elspeth ordering him to go and fetch various supplies from the room on the top floor, which Roger is never allowed into normally, but has special dispensation to enter due to the shitting plan changing. It appears our escape to Roger's office has somehow upset the apple cart, even if we did inadvertently walk straight into their clutches. My ability to hear most of Roger and Elspeth's earlier exchange is due to various kitchen vents, which filter sound quite effectively throughout the whole basement. Either they're not aware of this, or they don't care. It also helped that Elspeth and Roger's voices became louder as their irritation with each other grew. They clearly have a fractious relationship. I get the impression she's only entrusted Roger out of necessity, and that normally he'd be kept in the dark. I got that impression because that's exactly what they've been hissing at each other. 
I'll say this for sitting alone in a sinister chalk circle. It gives one time and space to ruminate on one's circumstances and to look for cracks in the relationships of one's captives. For instance, it turns out I'd been right to liken Roger's relationship with his mother to Psycho, you know, the film, when we were at the dinner party. His mother is very much in control. But rather than questioning his mother, he's acting like a small child, obediently doing as he's told, though there is some reluctance. I don't want to. You can't make me. I love her. Echoed throughout the kitchens at one point, followed by the fleshy whip cracking of a quick succession of slaps, and then a sloppy series of coddling and kissing noises. This disturbing little soundscape was swiftly followed by Roger's capitulation. Poor old Roger. Although really, it's about time he stood up to her. When your own mother starts involving you in kidnapping and God knows what else, it's time to cut the apron strings. Which, if he does indeed love me, ugh, he might well do. That's not the only thing I've learned, and it's not even the most unsettling. When we were upstairs, menacing Greg grabbed Dave from the bathroom and tossed him to Steve. Tossed! Tossed! He threw my dog! Oh, I am going to hurt that man before the night is done! In those brief moments before he found himself airborne, Dave took the opportunity to have a good sniff of Greg's scent. It took Dave roughly eight seconds to identify Greg as the Arcati killer. Yep, which also means that it's psychotic little Greg who's been shagging Elspeth. That's one way to incentivize your staff, I suppose. The Dave tossing, I am so angry about that, was about 40 minutes ago. It's roughly 5.30 p.m. now. God, I feel like we've been hanging around for ages. I've gone through all the shades of fear and come out the other end at aggravated boredom. I have what one might refer to as a short attention span. Impatient, I waggle my hands in their bonds and feel the bite of the plastic. So, Greg, what's it like being a goon? I say conversationally into the still, echoey air of the basement. Maybe you can put an effect on, dear. I'm sure I can do that. Excellent. I've decided to give up on the stubbornly absent Gabriel, my guardian angel, although Greg looks like he's going to ignore me too. But you're not just any old goon, are you? I've half a mind to say you're the brains behind this. Hmm, Greg? I wait for an explosive reaction, or a sharp intake of breath, or even a flickering eyelid. But Greg simply looks through me. Steve, meanwhile, looks up from playing with his phone, but still maintains an air of bewildered gormlessness. I have another try, more explicitly this time. What did they get you to do with the brains, Greg? Or should I call you... Bob! Oof, that gets a reaction, albeit a muted one. From staring in a soldier-like fashion into the middle distance, Greg's eyes suddenly zoom into focus like an automaton. He turns and walks over, stopping just outside the chalk circle. He's so close, I can smell him. He smells of Radox, the pink fruity one, which admittedly isn't very sinister. You know, he says dispassionately, face betraying nothing. I notice a small scar over his eyebrow. Looks like an old chicken pox scar, which, yes, also isn't very sinister. But his eyes are like painted glass fixed in shallow holes, more akin to a ventriloquist dummy than a person, so he's still pretty terrifying. How? He asks. Wouldn't you like to know? And maybe you'd like to know who I've told, too. Greg frowns at me as if I've nicked a chip off his plate. It's the biggest reaction I've got off him so far, but before I can think how to press my advantage, the temperature plunges. 
who? Asks Greg, but I'm distracted by Gaynor apparating in the corner of the room. The chicken is skewiff. She looks flustered. Oh dear. She says, looking round and floating towards me. What's going on here? Hello, Gaynor, I trill cheerfully, beaming as if I haven't a care in the world. Because when your back's against the wall, you might as well strike a pose. That's quite good. I like that. It's very good, yes. That could go on a t-shirt. Good tactic. Yes, it's good. You should add that to your esoteric shop. When your back's against the wall, you might as well strike a pose. Do let us know if you'd like me to design a T-shirt. I think the first magenta meme has arrived. <gasps> yes. Anyway. <clears throat> I turn my head to look at Greg. The ghost of Gaynor Tribble is here. She's one of the women you murdered. You don't remember? You should do. You've had your hands inside her skull. Who? He repeats dangerously, as if I hadn't spoken. That's him, is it? Huh. Gaynor says, peering close. She shudders. Yes, he seems the type, but no need to worry, my dear. She says, smiling encouragingly at me. The cavalry's arrived. Detective Eldris and PC Egg are here. Hope leaps up and momentarily chokes me. Oh, good work, Gaynor. I utter in strangulated tones, swallowing the lump. She's a nutter. Steve says from his distant place by the door, where he's chewing anxiously on his bottom lip. Who's she talking to, Greg? Shut up, Steve, says Greg flatly, still staring at me strangely. Perhaps he's trying to work out where to make the first incision. Obviously feeling protective, Gaynor tries to move closer to me, for all the good it will do. But she stops dead. Oh. She murmurs. She tries again, but can get no further. There's a barrier, dear. Someone's enchanted the circle. Oh, brilliant, I sigh. Someone knows what they're doing, then. One of these clowns evidently possesses genuine occult knowledge. Do you know where they are now? I ask Gaynor, deciding to ignore this new complication. Just outside. They're looking for a way in. Have they called for backup? I say, disinclined to disguise my meaning from Greg and Steve. Because they're screwed, aren't they? We'll be out of here in no time. Is an entire unit of armed policemen about to come down the driveway? I add, pointedly. Um, I don't know. Gaynor says, wringing her hands. I didn't see them call for back up, as you say, but I am sure they will at some point. I nod sagely and glance at the goons. Now you're in trouble! Without a word, Greg turns on his heel and marches away, pushing Steve roughly aside on his way out. Where are you going, Greg? Steve calls to his retreating back. Shit, did I say too much? Is he escaping? Shit! Follow him, I hiss to Gaynor, and she obligingly disappears. What's going on? Bernard calls from across the room. Not sure, I call back. Did you say the police are here? Bernard asks, excited. At this, Steve loses his bottle and takes off after Greg. The door slams shut behind him, and for the first time since this ordeal began, we find ourselves alone. I glare at Bernard. Bernard, why did you say the police were here? They might escape. Or worse, they'll find out there's only two of them. Bernard's mouth opens and closes like a fish. But, but, but you said... No time, I say urgently. Hang on. I stand up, but only in a weird half-crouch, as I'm still attached to the chair by my knees and wrists, and start shuffling slowly forward. I feel a slight tug on my sixth sense. Sixth sense. It's very hard to say that. Horrible, isn't it? Yes. Sixth 
sixth was actually sense. rather bold to call a film that, Shall wasn't I, it? Oh, God, yes. A lot of people would have had a lot of trouble saying that. Shall I say sense number six? That's a good idea, yes. I feel a slight tug on my sense number six as I cross the enchanted chalk so I, Oh, fuck no. That's, that's quite fun, that, isn't it? It's rather like mumbo number five. Yes. I'm very clever with words, but... Yes, you are very clever. I feel a slight tug on my sense number six as I cross the enchanted chalk line of the circle, but nothing more. Bernard also stands up, his wrist still attached to the table leg. He lifts Dave up and under his other arm, good job Dave's not a St. Bernard, and starts to pull the aluminium table along with him. It's on wheels and is designed to move between rooms, so his movement is easier and quicker than mine. How do we get out of here? I ask as we meet in the middle. Can you get through the door attached to that? I nod at the table. Uh, I think so. Here, let me undo you first. I hastily shuffle round so Bernard can undo the knots with his free hand. It's taking too long, I hiss as he struggles, anticipating the goon's return. Leave it, I can still move. He nods and we head for the door, which Bernard opens. I peer round. All clear, I whisper, and Bernard pushes the door fully open so that I can pass through. I shuffle into the corridor, bonds rubbing painfully against my skin, followed by Bernard and the table. Bernard has very wisely put Dave on top of the table at this point to free up his untied hand. Excited by the situation and on high alert, Dave is refusing to sit down. Consequently, he looks like he's surfing on a huge aluminium surfboard. I've had to say aluminium a lot. Yes, aluminium again for your American friends. Ahead of us is a long corridor which bends around to the right, where another longish corridor leads to the lift. Did I say that strangely? You you did emphasise it in a rather strange... Shall I say that again? No, let's keep it. All right. There are two doors along the corridor we're currently on, not including the one we just came from. What we need is the fire exit, but God knows where that is. Aren't there supposed to be signs for something like that? Dave sniffs the air. They're here. They've just come out of the moving box. He directs into my brain. What a clever boy. If we're quick and quiet, we have just enough time to duck into the door to our left, unseen. We can hide there until they pass, maybe undo our bonds, and then make a run for it. Into the room, I hiss at Bernard, nodding at the door. They're coming. Dave then utters a series of piercing, ferocious barks to warn off the intruders, which instead informs them that we're not where we should be. Ugh. Bernard and I look at each other wildly, rooted to the spot with indecision, in classic rabbit in headlights mode. Such an unhelpful natural response, like crapping yourself with fear. How's that helping anything? Bernard breaks first, pushing me towards the left-hand door. But it's too late. A figure appears from round the bend. (gasps) It's Eldris! Eldris! Oh, thank God! He's with a blonde lady in uniform, and Gaynor too floating above them. The coppers are walking rather stiffly, though, as if... Watch out. <laughs> Take your time, Bernard. Watch out. Gaynor shrieks at us, waving her arms. Greg appears, a gun trained on the policewoman's back. He looks down the corridor, straight at us. Back in the room. Back in the room now. Oh, end of the chapter. Yes, what a cliffhanger. So close to escaping. We're very close. Yes, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, it seems. Yes, and there's me sort of bound to a chair and you attached to a table. We're a whole dining unit. Yes, all hope is lost. Yes. (laughs) Who knew? Oh, Will no. we survive Will this? Will we survive? Who can Will we say? survive this to start a podcast several years later? <laughs> yes. Well. <laughs> there we go. That's how to 
ruin any atmosphere with Bill Tapp, isn't it? <laughs> really, I like to puncture things. There's no point in getting too serious about anything. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Listen to us next time, dear viewers, readers, listeners. Yes. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. It's the last days of summer, 1920. Do you know where your children are? They should be playing outside. Come on, Chelsea. Mima says we're not allowed to go to this house. We're not even supposed to be on this side of town. Doing their chores. Why aren't these chicken coops clean? Please, Father. I'll be good. I'll... Ah! Oh, God! Obeying their parents. You look me right in the eyes and tell me you didn't steal this bike. Ma, no, I've been helping Mr. Diamond, all right? Lord, don't tell me my son is working at a speakeasy. Exploring their feelings. Let's go over to the apple tree. Gosh, <laughs> okay. But unfortunately for these young fools, the neighborhood bully has other plans. Tonight, you are going to meet me out in front of the old Barnaker house. Howling house? Why? <laughs> now, a Boy Scout, a tag-along, a doormat, and a delinquent will dare to spend the night in the most haunted estate in Arkham. Will they survive to see the sunrise, or will they succumb to the hunger of Howling House? You're going to die tonight. What is that thing? Is this, is this the witch's library? I'm gonna kill you! Not tonight! Roger, make him stop! No! You watch! Run away, little ones. I'm so hungry. Listen to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's award-winning season, Night at Howling House. The complete story, available everywhere you listen to podcasts and at CthulhuMystery.com. All the all the outs and free. All the outs and free. <laughs>